Has anyone ever had a, a small child with a great big smear of cake or something over their face? Uh, and then you've noticed that there's a cake missing. Who took the cake? It, no, it wasn't me, the kid says. It could have been me as they speak with cake all over their face. It's kind of the idea behind it. Is it it's a bit like a smoking gun. It's obvious who ate that cake. And when people are, when you know, officers or when police are looking to find out who did something, who did that, the best thing is when you can find a smoking gun. Obviously, the principle of that is, is that there's you know, a gun that's just been fired. You can still see the smoke coming out. It's in someone's hand. You know who done it. You know how it happened. It's very obvious and very clear how it worked. Uh, when it comes to the Christian faith, there's kind of an argument that there both is a smoking gun and that there isn't a smoking gun. On the one hand, Jesus' life, death and resurrection is often given as being the smoking gun. If someone can live, die and rise again and go to be with God, then that's obviously a sign that there's something special going on. But then, of course, the challenge is that was about 2,000 years ago and no one sitting in this room, I don't think, no one, no, no, no one sitting in this room was there when it happened. Nobody sitting in this room was there present and actually saw Jesus as he raised to life. And so today we're going to explore that a little bit as we come towards the end of our series, looking at a Christian worldview. The whole premise of this series was to kind of step back and go, well, what is a Christian worldview? What, what are the essential aspects? Because we have so many churches and so many denominations and so many approaches to reading the Bible and so many translations of the Bible. Which one's right? Which one's not? How do we know if what we hold to is a Christian worldview. And we broke it down into four main sections, looking at origins, because there's nothing contentious about origins. Uh, there's lots of contention about origins. So we wanted to boil it down to what are the essentials? What are the things that all Christians actually effectively subscribe to? Uh, looked at meaning. What is the meaning of life? And how do we understand life through the lens of work and worship? And as we look at the scriptures, that's really the lens that underpins what meaning is. There's work and worship. And the word for that is the exact same word. We looked at morality and what does it mean to, to be moral? What does it mean to actually have an understanding of, of good and bad and evil and the different things that are around that? And then finally, we spent some time uh, digging into destiny. Where are we going? What does the future look like? What are the options and the alternatives? And, and what does the Christian faith believe and teach? And how can we have confidence in what was taught? But all of this is underpinned by one thing. A Christian worldview is based on Christ. It's in the very name Christian, Christ's ones. Christ means anointed, anointed ones. The Christian worldview is based on Christ. And so if we're going to say that all of this hinges on Jesus, and it does, then what's the best evidence that the story of Christ is true? If we're going to say that we're meant to have this Christian worldview and that it's the view that is true and that we need to spend the rest of our lives discovering this view and what it means to live with this view and letting a Christian worldview infiltrate our own hearts and minds and change the way we think and change the way we see the world, then can we have confidence that the story 
of Jesus is true. Did Jesus really live? How can we be sure? How can we know what evidence is there that he was actually? I mean, could this just be a story that was written and made up and he never actually existed? Or maybe Jesus did live. But did he die? I mean, okay, he definitely would have died, but, but did he rise again? Everyone dies. But did he rise again? And, and as part of that rising again, like, was that just a rise again to then die again? Or was that a rise again to then ascend into heaven? Because if Jesus really did live, and if Jesus really did die, and if Jesus really did rise again and go to be with the Father, we probably should take some time to explore what Jesus said the world was like. If those things are true, we should probably look at what a Christian worldview says and let that flavour the way that we live. So that's what we're going to look at and explore across today. So, Christian sources. What sources do we have? Now, one of the main things, of course, we have is we've got some Christian books. We've got the Bible. But you've got to remember that the Bible in itself was never written to be a book that is one book. It's not just one source. The Bible is a collection of books. It's a collection of letters. It's a a collection of resources that obviously has a lens towards the Christian worldview. And just because they're Christian doesn't exclude them from being sources. Obviously, people would say that they're biased because they obviously hold to the Christian faith. And so in and of themselves, to someone who is sceptical, it may not be enough. But the reality is everything we hold to, all history and all understanding of history, actually comes from sources that pretty much wrote about that from a perspective, uh, wrote about what was going on in that history from a particular perspective. And so though on one hand you might say these are a bit biased and a sceptical person might say, well, of course they say that. On the other hand, the fact that we have so many Christian books and so many letters and so many things around it actually goes a long way to attesting to the story that's contained within it. All but one of these are believed to have been written within 50 to 70 years of Jesus' death. So within 50 to 70 years, that's considered within someone's lifetime. So there were people who would have been around when these were written and started being spread around the area who would have been there when these events took place. It's one of the things that historians look for when you're looking at sources is how close to the events were they written down? What, what do we have and how can we be sure that, you know, if that actually happened and Joe over there was actually at the cross the day Jesus died, and said, oh, no, he didn't die. That was not Jesus. It was Joseph. But, you know, different things. You've got people who would have been alive who could have spoken to the veracity of these claims. A lot of things that we actually hold to may have been written two, three or four hundred years after the events. And so for the Gospels to have been written, or at the very least, the sources the Gospels may have used to have been written within the lifetime of those people who experienced it is a significant piece of evidence that the story of Jesus is true. Uh, Then it comes down to manuscripts. So they didn't write in books and look what we have today. It was very very expensive to actually write things down, uh, to get paper to write on. And actually, most people were illiterate, couldn't read, most people couldn't write. So you actually had to be a certain level of education to even be able to write to start with. 
And we've got over 5,000 manuscripts that are connected to the New Testament. Over 5,000. The next best in all of ancient history is Homer's Iliad. We've got about 650 manuscripts of that. Uh, Brian Harris, who was the he was the uh, the preacher, the preacher. He was the pastor at Kerry Baptist, uh, and also part of what was called Bow Seminary, but which is now Mauling West or Mauling Perth. Uh, he says this: nothing comes close to the Bible in terms of the number of manuscripts available or of their proximity to the actions described. Nothing, nothing comes close to the Bible in terms of the number of manuscripts that we have and the proximity to the actions described. When you're actually looking at, is there evidence for what Christians teach as being there? And we're not necessarily saying it's true, but do we have evidence that people believed it, that it was said, that it was written? It actually stands up greater than anything that we hold to be true from all of ancient history. The sheer number of sources that we have are incredibly significant. But then if you're going to say, all right, well, that's the Christian sources. That's all well and good. Of course, they're going to say those things. No one outside of the church would say that because there are some skeptics who actually argue there's no one who says this. No one outside of the church. And it's simply not true. Uh, there's a significant historian called Josephus. Uh, he, was, he was Jewish and he spoke a lot about what was going on at that time. He didn't come to believe that Jesus was the son of God. He didn't ever come to actually be a follower of Jesus. But he wrote extensively in the time about history that was going on. Uh, so one of the things that he wrote, which has a lot of things within it, uh, he's wrote the Antiquities of the Jews, about 93, 94 in the common era. So about 93, 94 years after Jesus' birth, depending on when you date Jesus' birth. And so one of the things he said is this. He attested in his writings to the existence of Jesus as a historical person. As far as Josephus was concerned, there was no doubt whatsoever that Jesus was a historical person and that some of his contemporaries considered him to be the Messiah. So remember, he's Jewish, so he understands the concept of Messiah. So he didn't believe it, but some of his contemporaries, he had no doubt that there were people in that time that believed Jesus existed and thought that he was the Messiah. Uh, another historian from the time uh, is Tacitus. Uh, he's a Roman historian, so not Jewish, and he was also a senator in Rome. Uh, he wrote what's called the Annals, the Annals of Tacitus, uh, in about the second century. So again, fairly early on. And at this point, late, uh, late enough after Jesus, that if Jesus was going to actually you know, there was, the church was going to be going. It was going to have had to last a significant period of time for these things to start to be written. Uh, so he wrote in his annals in the... Er oh, oh, there we go. Hold on. We've, if you can just go back for me, Melody, and for whatever reason, it's being funny. Anything that's around the computer, if you can move, because it's seeming to have some signal fun at the moment. New computers bring lots of fun. Uh, so he, there we go. So we've got Joseph Tacitus. He said this. No, we're not. Just go to the next one for me. He wrote in the annals. Here we go. Uh, he called Christians, they were called Christians by the populace. 
Christus, from whom the name has its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. So Tacitus actually affirms the resurrection, or not the resurrection, he affirms the crucifixion of Jesus. One of the Roman historians at the time actually writes down that there was a person who was called Christus. Again, ancient names have lots of versions, so don't be surprised when you see slight different variations. Uh, names actually had all, even, even within the English language for a long time, you could actually write someone's name multiple ways. It's only been the last few hundred years that we've had very defined ways of writing things. So he attests to the reality that Jesus was actually crucified. There was a person, he was called Jesus, and he was crucified by Pontius Pilate. Significant thing from someone outside of the faith to say, yes, this actually happened. Uh, then we've got Suetonius, another Roman historian. Sorry for those of you who may not love history, but it can be a helpful thing for those to actually recognise that there is real evidence for these things. Uh, Suetonius says he refers to the, the abuses by Emperor Nero and he mentions how Nero inflicted punishment on Christians, which is generally dated around 64 CE. So the very the early church was significantly persecuted by Rome because they had the temerity to actually believe that Jesus was God. And that couldn't be the case in Rome because Caesar was God. You couldn't believe that someone else was God. You were actually, it's funny, Christians were called atheists because if you didn't believe in, uh, in Caesar as God, you actually were considered to be atheists because you didn't believe in the theistic view of Caesar as God. Uh, how the tide has turned. But the early Christians were significantly persecuted and the reason they were persecuted was they had the temerity to believe that Jesus was God. And we have historians from the time who attest to those stories because some sceptics today try and say Christians were never persecuted. That didn't happen. But actually the evidence suggests otherwise, that they actually were willing to stand for their faith and die for their faith so certain were they that Jesus was God. They refused to renounce the idea that Jesus had risen from the dead. So they were basically offered life or death. You can continue to live or we're going to kill you right now. All you have to do is say Jesus didn't rise again. All you have to do is say, no, we were mistaken. He just died and he's still in the tomb. But they wouldn't do it. And so Nero had them killed because of that. Uh, we also have Pliny the Younger. I don't know who Pliny the Older is, but Pliny the Younger. He was a provincial governor of Pontus uh, and Bithynia. And so he was another governor, another person in the area. Uh, he says this. Uh, he states that he gives Christians multiple chances to affirm that they are innocent, and if they refuse three times, they are executed. Uh, he states that he investigates, these investigators have revealed nothing on the Christian part but harmless practices and depraved excessive superstitions. So what was happening were people were being brought to Pliny the Younger, and they were being accused by other people of all kinds of crazy, crazy things. And so he would give them three chances to say that they didn't do those things. And as he actually started to investigate them, 
Uh, again, this is the words that you would expect from those who don't hold to the truth of Jesus rising from the dead. It's like they got these strange superstitions that Jesus rose from the dead. They got these strange ideas that, that they should be you know, eating and drinking and remembering his death through having some blood and doing these sacrifices. But it was going on. And this is what was coming to those in authority at the time. That clear evidence both of Jesus and the early church's commitment to the story of Jesus' life, death and resurrection. Uh, some scholars estimate that we actually have about 30 sources, 30 surviving sources, from about 25 different people. So that's quite a significant number of different people, all external to the Christian faith. So that's not even just including those who actually would have a Christian faith. At least 30 sources from 25 different people all attesting to the story of Jesus. All attesting to the story of the early church and their confidence in Jesus' life, death and resurrection. Which is the very heart of the Christian faith. And it's why we believe what we believe. I'm about to get a little bit more technical, so hang with me again. But anyone who likes history, then this kind of will go right in for you. Uh, there's, a, there's a thing called inference to the best explanation. Inference to the best explanation. So basically what that means is, if you've got all this evidence, what's the best hypothesis or what's the best theory that explains the available data? So if you've got all this evidence, there might be several ways of interpreting it, but what most makes sense? What most, you know, what do you have to least sort of twist to make it say what you want it to say? What's the clearest understanding that would come because of that view? And so where that actually sits in terms of the evidence around this is that as a result of the preaching of the early disciples, which very clearly had resurrection at the centre, as a result of the preaching of the early disciples with resurrection at the centre, the Christian church was established and grow. Because you can't deny that the church exists. I mean, it still exists today. And you can trace it all the way back historically to the time of Jesus. And the evidence clearly shows that the early church taught that Jesus came back from the dead and ascended to the Father. And yet somehow amongst all the persecution and all the reason for people not to subscribe to these crazy... I mean, just for a moment, pretend that if you're here today and you actually follow Jesus and you've decided this is true, imagine you didn't actually believe that. That sounds strange. Like It, it actually does sound strange. It's a challenging thing for sceptical people to wrestle with. But what is very clear is that from the earliest times of the church... This was at the centre. It wasn't a, 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 a peripheral issue. It wasn't sort of one that was sort of talked about on the side. It was at the very heart of what it meant to follow Jesus. And the early Christians gave their lives. Such was the strength of their belief that Jesus rose from the dead. Why should we have a Christian worldview? Because it's based on the person of Christ. And if Jesus can live and Jesus can die and Jesus can rise again, I'm going to explore what he says. I'm going to try and come to understand the world through the lens of what he was teaching and the background and the faith that he's a part of. 
So let's take a moment. We're going to delve into some other faiths very briefly. Uh, and how does the Bible, or how does the evidence of Jesus, or, or how does the evidence, all of this, stack up to some other faiths or other books or, or other things of that nature? Uh, so one of them we have, of course, is what the Book of Mormon. Now, the Book of Mormon is not historically accurate. I have no, I have no qualms in saying that very, very concretely, because there is no external evidence of any of the peoples or the nations that are listed in the Book of Mormon. So the Book of Mormon is the only source. Uh, it was also written by one person. It's one person writing one source. The Bible is multiple people from multiple sources, and I'll talk to that again in a moment. Uh, then you got the Quran. Similarly, the Quran was narrated by one person, Muhammad. Uh, he couldn't write, so it wasn't written by Muhammad. It was written by some scribes or some people, which again at that time was actually, that was the way things were done. So that doesn't detract from it. But the reality was it was him with a few scribes writing it in a single lifetime. So it took about the most of Muhammad's life that he was sort of working on this document. But the Bible is written by at least 30 to 40 different people over at least a thousand years. So at least 30 to 40 people contributed to the Bible over a period of at least a thousand years. It's really, hold, really hard to hold something together for that long if you're trying to fabricate a story. If you're trying to get, th trying to get 30 to 40 people, there's, there's actually about 40 people in the room today. So imagine if we were going to sort of sit down and we were all going to try to work out and write something that had to hold for the next few thousand years and we all had to agree on everything. That would be fun, wouldn't it? Let's not do that. Uh, it's just, it just doesn't happen. We would all leave the room all certain we had clarity about what we were going to say and we would all go through 40 different versions of it. And yet the Bible holds together so well with so many different people. That's not to say there aren't some challenges. Of course there are. And there are different viewpoints. It's actually part of what adds to the, to the, to the strength of the Bible. About 30 to 40 people over a thousand years. Now, many of the other world faiths, they equally have either one person or one significant person or it's one person's writings in a lifetime and that's the bedrock of that faith. Nothing compares with the breadth of numbers and manuscripts and people and time frames to the story of Jesus in our world today. And everything about a Christian worldview is built upon this reality. See, I, and I said this a couple of times when I was preaching over the last few weeks. I shared some views that I struggle with. I don't sit comfortably. They're not necessarily the sort of thing that I go, you know what, I'm really glad that that's the case. It's not about necessarily what we sit comfortably with. It's wrestling with coming to understand what is true. And every aspect of that is built upon the person of Christ. That, that the central spoke of the Christian faith is the story of Jesus' life, death and resurrection. It's the one thing that those who are sceptical need to wrestle with and come to an understanding. Because if that's true, then it's worth exploring the rest of it. And if it's not true... Well then, okay, the rest of it might lead to some helpful things and there might be some good truths in there and there might be some good aspects, 
but ultimately it's fruitless. A Christian worldview hinges on the person of Christ. So what does Jesus call us to? What does this all mean for us? How, how are we to actually live in light of the Christian worldview? Well, really the first step that a person takes, and maybe you've taken this step, maybe you're here today and you're still thinking about what this looks like. The first step is simply to engage. Jesus calls people to him and says, come follow me. And what I love about this story and what I love about what Jesus did is he wasn't actually calling them to follow him as God because they didn't know that yet. When he was calling the disciples to come and follow him, they didn't know Jesus was the Messiah. They didn't know that Jesus was going to die and rise again because it hadn't happened yet. They were just interested in Jesus as a teacher. And so sometimes with those people who you're trying to help them lead to see Jesus, they may not be ready to accept Jesus as God yet. They may not be willing to accept him as Messiah yet. But they're looking to you and they're looking to the way you live and they're looking to the way that faith makes a difference in your life. So that maybe, just maybe, they'll go, I'm not sure about the fullness of this Christian thing, but there must be something there. And maybe, just maybe, they might start to follow Jesus just as teacher. And then as they go and as time passes and as they wrestle with more of those things, we pray that they would have an encounter. But not just one encounter. See, part of the Christian faith is that we should be having an ongoing encounter with Jesus. Part of the reason we come together on a Sunday and part of the reason we make this a rhythm and as much as possible, we try and make this the sort of place we are at every week that this is just part of what we do, is we live in a world that tries to tell us that we shouldn't encounter Jesus or that Jesus isn't there. And we need to be able to come together and encourage one another and have more and more encounters with Christ. Hopefully someone encounters him. And, and so you know, there's the story where Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says to them, who do people say that I am? And they go, oh, some say you're John the Baptist and some say you're just a good teacher and some say you're this and that. But then Jesus says to Peter, who do you say I am? And he turns and says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. And that's where we hope people come to. So then he goes on to say, and on this rock, not meaning Peter himself, meaning the statement, on this rock, I will build my church. On your understanding of me as the Son of God, as Messiah, as the one who has come to make the world right, that's going to be at the heart of my church. And sometimes we as followers need to be reminded of that again and again because things happen in our lives. Things rock our faith. Things challenge our understanding because the world is broken and broken things happen. So we come together and we engage and we praise and we honour God. And not all of us can sing, but that's okay because we sing anyway because God hears it as a wonderful voice. And we listen and we learn and we grow together and we're encouraged and equipped and sent out again into our week to share our encounter with Christ. And then we look to be equipped. We start the journey we come to see Jesus as Lord and we spend the rest of our lives 
wrestling with what faith means. We spend the rest of our lives asking the curly questions. We spend the rest of our lives trying to make sense of the Bible and the fact that there are so many different viewpoints and translations and denominations and understandings and we wrestle and we journey, but we all do it on the bedrock of an understanding of Jesus. And so Jesus says as he's about to go and his disciples have finally got it because the story of the Gospels, it takes them a while. And he comes to them and he's just died on the cross and risen again and the penny has dropped and he goes, go and do what I've been doing. Go and make disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit and teach them always. And I will be with you to the ends of the earth. And that's our call all built on that bedrock belief. Yes, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. I believe he's the Messiah. I'm going to live my life with a Christian worldview and part of that is I am sold out to making disciples. Because if Jesus lived and if Jesus died and if Jesus rose again, we probably should take what he teaches seriously. And so we do. And that's our life. Heavenly Father, we thank you first and foremost that while we were sinners, you died for us. Irrespective of our own stories and journeys and backgrounds, you came to die for us. We thank you that we can have confidence in your story, that we can have confidence that you lived, we can have confidence that you died, we can have confidence that you rose again. And Lord, we look forward to your return with the same confidence. May you encourage us, may you equip us, may you support us to live this life with your eyes. May we see what you see, may we hear what you hear, may you lead us and encourage us and challenge us to be your hands and feet into a world in need. We thank you in Jesus' name.